1: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
2: So once again this morning, Boris painted into a corner on the front of the Daily Mail. PM's furious watchdog launches inquiry into cash for curtains. Boris is the judge at his own trial. Uh, and finally on the Times, the front page, Downing Street, concern at paper trail to PM's flat. Now, this is a ridiculous situation now. Uh, a mess of Boris's own making. Let's talk to John Rental, chief political commentator from the Independent John, a very good morning to you. Why on earth is he doing it?
3: Good morning, Mike. I mean, that is a very good question. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Because uh, there's something something not quite right here, I think. There's something we don't yet know that uh, explains why the Prime Minister is so reluctant to just uh, follow the normal rules of uh, how to deal with a PR disaster, which is just get all the information out there as quickly as possible uh, and let people make their minds up Now, yeah. Clearly, one of the things that uh, we didn't know about was that the Electoral Commission thinks that the law has been broken, yeah. uh, or that it, there are reasonable grounds for thinking that the law has been broken. And uh, that's a bit of a shocker. Well, I came uh, but, in
2: yesterday as we were on the air, and I thought, well, this now puts it into a very different category, doesn't it?
3: Well, absolutely. Uh, but that's not um, that's not Boris Johnson breaking the law. That's the Conservative Party failing to disclose uh that it paid for the for the decorations initially mm. i suspect something something of that uh, but doesn't that doesn't i mean
2: happened. this is where it starts to get interesting and i'd like you to explain it for everybody because it's complex this way of um sort of policing things because presumably the electoral commission is uh worried about what the tory party may have done are they in any way uh able to to to, to look into the ministerial code as well or is that a different body no that's different
3: that's that's why this doesn't touch uh boris johnson right. yet, because Boris Johnson is obviously required to uh, update his register of members interest. Now, that's uh, that's supervised by you know, the House of Commons. Right. Uh, he's also got there's also this thing called the register of ministers interests, which is separate, which hasn't been published uh, within the normal period. And that's supposed to be supervised by this uh, independent adviser on ministerial. Right. That, that, could,
2: that could make some very interesting reading, couldn't it?
3: Well, yeah, except I mean, presumably it's roughly the same as what's on the register of members' interests, because it's anything that uh, that might um, appear to uh, set up a conflict of interest. So we'll see. The I mean, the prime minister appointed a new uh, independent advisor on ministerial yeah. um, interest yesterday, Lord Gaite, who used to be the Queen's private secretary. Uh, so there's a lot yeah.
2: of I mean I was thing. thinking I was thinking not just in terms of this particular situation with Boris I was thinking more in terms of you know the sort of conflict of interest that we've been hinting at uh, since the beginning of the Covid pandemic you know all sorts of companies being formed you know PPE um, suppliers being chosen that kind of thing well
4: that
3: that, that is a separate thing again right. <laughs> that's <laughs> not that's not the electoral commission or the uh, parliamentary standards okay. so, uh, um, the, you know that, that, Keir Starmer will have to pursue uh, separately. Um, and I think public opinion on that broadly is that the government, if the government cut corners in order to, to, to get more PPE in a national emergency, yeah. then, uh, so be it. I don't think people are too bothered about it. No, that. I don't
2: think they are. And funnily enough, I mean, there is a lot of people who are not too bothered about this uh, the situation with the redecoration of the flat. However, um, regardless of whether they're bothered, I think this is still a very difficult and problematic situation for Boris Johnson.
3: Precisely. I mean, I think I mean, people are, you know, people are more likely to be able to relate to it because everyone thinks that you know spending two hundred thousand pounds, which is the figure that's often been bandied about mm. on uh, on the flat, is a bit excessive, even if Boris Johnson paid for it himself.
2: Yeah,
3: I mean, the the taxpayer contributed a certain certain amount, possibly uh, possibly sixty thousand uh, pounds, because uh, prime ministers are allowed to spend up to. Thirty thousand pounds a year, and uh, uh, and Boris didn't spend anything uh, the year before last. Um, you know, were twenty nineteen to twenty. Mm. So it could have it could have claimed up to sixty thousand. Yeah.
2: tax. this is what's great about government, isn't it? Public money because you know in most people's world, if you don't spend money one year, you don't get to roll it over into the second year <laughs> and go. Well, I'll just spend it next year. You know what I mean? You know, it's it's an incredible kind of privileged position to be in, and also I think people are really quite. Um, incredulous that you haven't you haven't got enough money uh, when you've got sixty thousand pounds to redecorate a flat.
3: Well, well, Boris Johnson didn't think he did have enough money. I mean, uh, it would it would seem because he was reluctant to cough up with cough up that uh, that mm. uh, as in the first place. That's why we think the Conservative Party uh, stumped up, and then Lord Brownlow, who used to be uh, the Conservative Party treasurer, uh, seems to have uh, coughed up himself uh, before Boris finally decided he was going to have to pay for it, mm. um, which uh, which is his defence that, you know, all, all the sort of manoeuvrings in between don't matter because he ended up paying yes. for it himself. But unfortunately, as you say, they do matter because if the law was broken, then that's a bit of a problem for yeah. the Conservatives.
2: And also let's go back to the beginning on this, because I think and I don't think the beginning is that far back. The beginning, I think, is the business of Dyson last year, uh, last week in Prime Minister's questions when Keir Starmer sort of failed really to land any punches by having a go at the conversations being held between um, Dyson and Boris Johnson. But then Downing Street, for some unknown reason, decided to lay it all at the door of Dominic Cummings, thereby awaking this kind of sleeping giant um, who yeah. then who then retaliated, as you might have expected him to, with this huge blog on Friday, um, which kind of starts, yeah. stirred up now this particular hornet's nest. And, and had they not done any of that, so, for example, had Boris Johnson and Downing Street not said anything about Dyson to anyone, we wouldn't even be here.
3: Yeah, I mean, that. I think that is right. I mean, uh, Boris Johnson does seem to have provoked... Dominic Cummings by accusing him of leaking the James Dyson yeah. uh, texts, which I don't think he did. Uh, but I mean, that seems to be a different leak, mm. pro- possibly from a civil servant who thought that there was something uh, something improper going on. Although, actually, a- again, I think most public opinion on that is that you know James Dyson was was trying to help out in the middle of an emergency. Yes, and, absolutely. You know, well, that's what I mean. I mean,
2: you know, he, he he had come through that prime minister's questions pretty much unscathed, in my viewpoint, yeah. and and had defended what he did quite quite admirably. And I don't think anyone would have cared less. No, but if Dominic Cummings
3: is behind the leaks on the uh, on the number eleven flat refurbishment, yeah, um, which have been drip drip dripping into the Daily Mail since the second of March, yeah, uh, then. You know, perhaps it doesn't matter that he was provoked uh, on that particular occasion because he was going to um, he was going to go all out on that anyway. Yes, uh, and of course Dominic Cummings is giving evidence to a parliamentary committee on the twenty sixth of May,
2: mm.
3: uh, which is when uh, which is when this could all get uh, get very colourful.
2: Well, I'm reading this morning that he may also be called by the electoral commission to give evidence to them about what he knows.
3: Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, I mean, it is fascinating because there's uh, there's clearly. There's clearly a bit more going on than uh, than we're aware of. Yes, but, uh, because it does uh, seem
2: extraordinary that they are now risking effectively um, the Electoral Commission getting access to all of the private emails inside of Downing Street between Boris Johnson, Carrie Simons and whoever else. And I mean, that seems an extraordinary thing to, to give in <laughs> to uh, if all you have to do is tell us what the name was of the guy that loaned you the 58 grand. Well, ab-
3: absolutely. Especially as everybody seems to, to know who it was. It was Lord Brownlow. but right. it's the. The email was leaked to the Daily Mail the other day um, saying that he was he was stumping up this money, which the Conservative and he says in the email, which the Conservative Party has already paid, um, you know, for the Downing Street refurbishment. And so, you know, I don't know what else is uh, what else is going on.
2: Right. Well, then why is it in that case that basically he seemingly um, is so reluctant to come up with the information? Is he simply being truculent? Is he simply being somebody who doesn't wish to be pushed around? Is he trying to make a point? I mean, what's it all about?
3: Well, I think uh, both of those. Uh, I think uh, he hate, Boris Johnson hates um, answering questions about his private life, mm. um, as, 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 as we know. Uh, and, but also, I think he calculates that politically there's, there's just nothing to be gained by, uh, by, by talking about um, his domestic arrangements mm. uh, at all. Which cuts across the the normal assumption of how to deal with a, a media crisis of this kind, which is to get everything out uh, into the open mm. and 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 defend yourself.
2: Because and also um, there is a difference, John, isn't there? I mean, I, I'm totally with him, and I understand when he says I don't wish to talk about my children, I don't wish to talk about my uh, my my private life in that sense. But this is not about his private life. This is about money that is spent on on a on a house, effectively, or a building which we own. And which belongs to the state, and which belongs to the electorate, and which belongs to all the people who put him into Downing Street, and so he has yeah. actually got um, uh, um, an absolute, um, I don't know, imperative. I would say to, to tell us what what he's done.
3: Well, absolutely, and especially as some of it is public money, um, because up to thirty thousand a year comes from the taxpayer, right. and we just know how much of that, how much of that thirty thousand pounds a year, he's used. Um, I mean, obviously, if, he's, if he had just done it all himself, spent all the money himself in the first place, there would be no further questions. Right. But he didn't. It wasn't as simple as that. I mean, it's very striking. Yesterday, uh, the the Chancellor, yes, she soon I was going to say, a question about about his flat in yeah. Number Ten Downing Street, uh, saying that uh, he hadn't asked the, the taxpayer to stump up a penny. He'd uh, he'd paid for it all
2: himself. Yeah, maybe Boris should have asked him for the money, and that would have been easier. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is the thing, um, you know, because Rishi Sunak, I mean, obviously, is a very, very wealthy man. And so, you know, it's not a problem for him. But, you know, when you're spending £30,000 and all you can buy for that is four of these lamps that they seem to have uh, bought because they cost about six grand a piece, six and a half grand a piece. I mean, it's not surprising they need to borrow more money. Well, <laughs> no,
3: but this is where it gets sensitive, isn't it? Because it is all assumed to be uh, Carrie Simon. Yeah. Yeah fiance but, who had actually been organising this right? Uh, but that's the other thing that
2: puzzles me I was talking to somebody about it yesterday why didn't she just pay for it because I mean she's not short of a few bob and frankly you know if she had paid for it then everything would have been fine
3: but, uh, maybe but perhaps she doesn't have that kind of money I don't know why, why do you think she's rich
2: well, I don't think she's poor. I mean, um, I, you know, I, I, I don't see why if she's not rich, this is the thing that I that gets me. If you're not rich and you can't afford to spend £100,000 redecorating your flat, you don't do it. You know, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't spend £100,000 redecorating my flat because I haven't got it. I wouldn't <laughs> suddenly go, I know, I'll go to my good friend John Rental, borrow hundred grand from him, and then I can get my flat redecorated. That's not the way the world huh. works, is it?
3: That would seem like a fairly simple option. And that that is why, but that is why uh, I do think this has some traction with public opinion, because I think that's what a lot of people think. I mean, who needs to get their flat done up uh, that expensively? It doesn't really matter that, you know, he hasn't asked the taxpayer to pay very much of it. No. Um, It just seems like a politician, um, you know, feathering his nest. Yes.
2: And in PMQs yesterday, he was clearly getting very annoyed with Keir Starmer, wasn't he?
3: Oh well, what was it? Uh, I thought. I thought that was all put on for show. I think that was a, just an attempt to, uh, to to distract from the uh, from the embarrassment of uh, of the refurbishment. Mm. I thought that was all. I, I thought that was completely really? got up. Okay. Got up.
2: Well, yeah. we'll we we'll, 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 we'll agree to disagree on that because it seemed to me that he was quite rattled until the end when he made that kind of Boris-like speech about what they'd done and how great the government was. And until he did that, I thought he was slightly off the pace. <sighs>
3: Yeah, uh, well, I think he's clearly—it's—it's it's an uncomfortable place. Well, for it's embarrassing, isn't and it? I thought this—I thought that was synthetic anger at the at the end, in order to allow him to, to put together this sort of windmilling defence of the government and uh, saying the yeah, the British the British public are really interested in the people's priorities as he mm. keeps calling, it, which is which is the vaccine rollout, where he's on very strong ground, obviously. Yes. Uh, but I mean, you know, he wants to go on, on the levelling up. Uh, business as well, and he and he ended up with a with a huge pitch for the sixth uh, of May uh, elections, and that's what uh, I think that's what he was he was trying to get at was that you know never mind all this uh, this tittle tattle uh, I've got a proper election to fight and I've got some proper policies to to fight it with
2: yes and no doubt that. Um, policy uh, battle will probably not change and the, uh, the, 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 the polls will probably not change as a result of this particular situation. But people are saying this morning um, that this is as bad a scandal for Downing Street as cash for honours back in the old Tony Blair days, is it?
3: <laughs> well, well, I thought that was uh, that was a pile of nonsense as well.
2: Well, you would have thought you would have thought that, wouldn't you?
3: Well, it, it was—it was a ridiculous uh, investigation that was never going to uh, never going to come to a conclusion, and yet it did a lot of political damage uh, because it was in the headlines uh, day after day, and you know you got to the ludicrous position where the BBC was offering cash incentives to its reporters to come up with another twist on the story. It was <laughs> absurd. It was absolutely absurd. The whole thing, but it was—it was very damaging. Um, and that, that, I suppose, you could say that's an example of where, you know, just just coming out with all the with all the facts didn't kill the story. So mm. maybe Boris Johnson has has decided that that publishing everything is is not in his
2: interest. Yeah, but surely it can't be in his interest to have the electoral commission poring over all of his private emails.
3: No, uh, it, it can't be. But I mean, maybe there isn't a way of stopping that. Like mm. Once and once once one of these sort of media establishment juggernauts gets going, it's quite difficult to stop mm. them.
2: Although it's quite difficult to see where it goes from here. I mean, I was a bit puzzled yesterday as to where it would go. um, And it wasn't really until this morning's papers when I saw that there are some people apparently inside Downing Street who are concerned about it. According to the Times, they're worried that there's something in it uh, which they don't know about because only a very few people at Conservative Party headquarters even know who's involved. So, I mean, you say everybody knows that it's Lord Brownlow. I mean, I'm not sure if that's what they think. No, I
3: mean, that that is absolutely, absolutely right, Mike. I mean, the the thing is, we don't know where this is going to go. I mean, if if the facts are roughly as we assume them to be, uh, then I think that will peter out. Uh, eventually well, well it, well, it you would
2: think so but i mean the mail seems to have an absolute um, um torrent of of information and ex- enthusiasm for this story and i've often yep. wondered whether this th- this whole thing began as a kind of um personal vendetta from somewhere uh when well, something yep. must have happened between Carrie simons and somebody at the mail well the,
3: between Carrie simons and dominic cummings i mean i think that is that is possibly uh, where this all uh, this all began. I mean, mm. we don't know where these stories about the refurbishment came from to start off with, but it seems it's, it seems possible that they came from uh, from Dominic Cummings because he said in that uh, in that blog that you you mentioned last week, he said he said that he had told the prime minister he thought this was a terrible idea mm. trying to get.
2: Done, well, he told him more than that. He told him that it might be unethical and that it could possibly be yeah. illegal.
3: Exactly. so if he is the source of all these stories then you know this this is this is really the sort of backwash of the falling out between Dominic uh, Cummings and his mm. former boss uh, and with Carrie Simons being possibly uh, the agent of it because it was the it was it was really the clash between Carrie Simons and, and Dominic Cummings that finally forced him out yeah and, uh, and what is up. and
2: what is Cummings doing now apart from obviously plotting <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. I mean even he can't plot 24 hours a day surely
3: no, but he does tend to go for these. He, he tends to sort of disappear from public life for for long periods. Right. I mean, he, he went he went to his his hermitage in in County Durham uh, some time ago and and just and just hold hold away in a bunker and wrote long long blogs about uh, about science and data. Right. Uh, I mean, perhaps that's what he's doing. I don't know.
2: Yeah, but I mean, he's not working for anybody, as far as we're aware. No. Right. Well, maybe um, he could get himself involved in the one final story I just want to mention to you this morning, in the top, also on the front page of the Times. Britain's ready to welcome its ambassador from Brussels. thought you'd be excited about this one.
3: Well, that's interesting, yeah, because, I mean, it, it may relate to Dominic Cummings in the sense that, you know, not recognising the, the EU ambassador uh, looked like a very uh, sort of Dominic, Dominic Cummings confrontational yes. uh, brexit thing to do. Uh, and, you know, along with a lot of other things, uh, you know... Such as the, the, the endless war with them, with with journalists that Number Ten seemed to be waging while Dominic Cummings was in in Number Ten. Uh, it seems that uh, more uh, sort of calmer heads have prevailed, and uh, they've decided that you know you do need a working relationship with the EU after all. Yes,
2: and you might not have to always have to get on the Eurostar every time you want to talk to them. Interesting stuff, John. Thank you very much indeed, John Rental, chief political commentator there uh, at the Independent. People will say to me all through the show today. Nobody cares about this story. Nobody cares. But unfortunately, the fact that nobody cares about it, which I don't believe to be the case in any event, uh, does not affect how important it is. Because if Boris Johnson is now going to have to hand over all of his personal emails, if Carrie Simons is going to have to hand over all of her personal emails to the Electoral Commission, all of those personal emails will no doubt find their way into leaks, will find their way into newspapers, will find their way into a whole ranch and tranche of other stories, which surely Boris Johnson can't want. I mean, why would he want that? I don't understand why he has literally hurtled off the track into uh, the hay bales and over the side into the marina at Monaco because he was about to win the race. What is going on? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Let us talk now, though, to Dr. Simon Clark, Associate Professor uh, in Cellular Microbiology, of course, because uh, we've got a few COVID stories to catch up with and a few things to ask him about. Dr. Simon, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Some uh, interesting news today, I suppose. We've been um, blissfully um, sort of in the good news column for quite a while in this country now for, uh, for yeah. the last few weeks. Meeting indoors after two jabs is safe, according to Professor Jonathan Van Tam. Um, but we're still not allowed to do it.
5: Yeah, uh, the key bit there is after two jabs. Yeah. I don't know, but I suspect... That there's an element of uh, behavioural science taking taking uh, the reins here. You don't say because because I suspect <laughs> they think <laughs> they think that if uh, they see you know, if, if people like me who've had one jab or perhaps people who've had no jabs see people who've had two jabs uh, socialising indoors, mm. they're going to think the rest of us are going to think. Well, yeah, it won't really matter. I can do that. Um, so that is my guess. Yes, but, uh, I mean yeah, there's no there's paleo- no obvious.
2: question. I don't think it's interesting this whole behavioural science thing because, as we know, an awful lot of the sage people are behavioural scientists rather yep. than actual scientists like yourself. Um, <laughs> and well, I mean, I think there's a difference, you know. I mean, but there is. I mean, but I've been watching people's behaviour because you know that's what I do anyway. And over the last week or two, I've noticed that there's a much more relaxed sort of air going on out there. There's more people around. There's more people on the public transport system. Yeah. Um, there's more people, I would say, mingling with one another because they've either had a jab and maybe they feel safer uh, or they feel like there's not much COVID around, so they feel a bit safer. You know, There's. I mean, and so therefore I can sort of understand why these behavioural scientists yeah. don't want to let everybody go nuts because mm-hmm. it's already, in a way, beginning to happen, I think.
5: Uh, yeah, I mean, inevitably, when you let the, the cork out of the bottle, then uh, people are going to... Uh, going to start uh, trying to mix, trying to get their lives back to normal. and I right. think that's entirely understandable. I mean, it's good, it's healthy.
2: Yes, I think so. Because, I mean, you know, knowing what we know from yesterday's figures, I think it's something like 70% of people now in the country have some form of antibody, whether it's from uh, yeah. the vaccine or whether it's from the actual um, uh, disease itself. And also 40 million people now living in areas where there's hardly any COVID.
5: Yeah, exactly so th- these are all reasons to be going full steam ahead with things uh within in what just over a fortnight is it uh we're going to be looking at moving up to another level of freedom and then on to uh on to june i see yes. no reason why that shouldn't happen i think it will
2: No, I think that's right. I mean, there are still people a little bit frustrated, I would say, uh, particularly people in business who would like to be able to open up their restaurants. I was in in one yesterday where the guy was literally like, you know, we can't make any money this way. You know, I sat in in this restaurant in Kensington. There was one other table occupied. He's got about four tables outside. So there was half of the the capacity in any one day. So he won't have even taken enough money from the two of us, effectively, to pay for the people that were working there.
5: Yeah. And it's very sad. But um, the politicians, I think, have had their fingers burnt last year and uh, they will accordingly be a bit more careful in terms of lifting in terms of lifting the restrictions. Mm. That's just inevitable.
2: Yeah. I mean, a lot's going to depend as well, isn't it, on the travel business? And and we're seeing, um, you know, indicators, at least, that we may be in a position to travel in June. I guess it depends on what's going on in the rest of Europe, really, doesn't it, in terms of travel to Europe?
5: It does. We've got to face that fact that it's not all just down to us. Um, You know, what's going on in other countries? Who else are they letting into their country for us to mingle with? I Mm. think that's something that's got to be taken into account. But I do think come the summer there will be the opportunity for holidays, but it might not be the full range that we've had
2: two, three years ago. Mm. And what's your take on this whole kind of vaccine conversation about whether uh, we should be vaccinating younger people um, rather than perhaps donating vaccines to other countries?
5: Well, it is inevitable that younger people will act as not necessarily engines for spread, but opportunities for it. And there will always be in the older cohort, people who can't have a vaccine for health reasons and people who have a vaccine, do everything right, but for whom they they get little or no protection. There will always be people like that. So. Uh, vaccinating younger people re- reduces the opportunity for spread into those unprotected people.
2: Yeah. But will there always be uh, something going on somewhere in the world? I mean, obviously, we're looking at India at the moment and it looks pretty awful there. Um, but again, it's a very populous country. Uh, normally yeah. speaking, loads and loads of people, 27,000 people, I think, on, an, on any given day die in India uh, of all sorts of things. They're yeah. losing, I think, somewhere between two and three thousand a day at the moment um turkey are looking at doing a lockdown apparently for the first time properly i think it seems to me there's always going to be some covid somewhere isn't there
5: yes and i think there will be um unless you have a smallpox style eradication program that takes years Mm. and and requires governments to be quite strict about it then uh, there will always be something i mean even if uh, all the governments in the world really put their mind to it to get rid of it like they did with with smallpox it will take time it yeah. will take many years
2: and is that something you think that, uh, that that will be there will be a will for if you like because it has been so devastating for for so much of the world's economies really
5: I think we'll need to see proof that uh, in the coming months and years, there is really is the opportunity for variants to come along and, and throw all our hard work under the bus. Mm. Uh, that That's the only thing I think that will frighten governments into spending the money. Yes.
2: Although, thus far, none of the variants have proved uh, anything that the that the vaccines can't handle, have
5: they? Uh, well, I think the South African variant might throw up some problems. There is some data suggesting that. Uh, but We've already uh, had don't that, know, that one, though, haven't we? Uh, in this country, yeah. it's, it's here, yeah. Um, but we've, we've got we've, we've got our lockdown. We've got our vaccines. Um, there is suggest is a suggestion that the South Africa variant may push back against mm. uh, the vaccines. We'll see with that one. This stuff about the Indian variant, um, I'm not entirely sure that it is actually uh, uh, all that resistant to the vaccines, mm. and I'm not all that sure it spreads much faster than, for example kent and south africa mm. there's a lot of stuff, and i mean again that's
2: already here as well what's your what's your understanding of the, the indian variant in in this country at the moment
5: well it's here in small numbers it's probably brought in multiple times yeah uh and but i think I did we not
2: did, was it not said that we had something like 75 cases of it i mean is that, do you look at that and then go well if it goes up to 150 then obviously it's very transmissible if it stays at 75 you're fine um Well, what we've got to remember is
5: that it's going up while most of the other strains are going down. Mm. So that is slightly concerning. I mean, people are not living normal lives. So it's really very difficult to to work out an R number for one particular variant.
2: Mm. Yes, it is, isn't it? And as far as the the, the vaccines go, we're hearing as well now that uh, AstraZeneca might be recommended not to be taken by people under 30. Um, I presume that's possibly because of the blood clotting problem, is it?
5: Yeah, I can think of no other potential reason. But um, the AstraZeneca vaccine uses a a technology that's used by others like uh, Johnson & Johnson and uh, the Russian vaccine. They're all very similar. They're not exactly the same. Mm. Uh, And they have their problems as well. So um, we'll see how long that technology is
2: used for. But none of them appear to have any problems over and above what most vaccines would have anyway, right? That's right. I'm I'm not entirely sure why people are all that concerned.
5: And I speak to to people who uh, who work on blood clotting, and they're not either. Mm. Um, so uh, may, maybe the governments know something we don't.
2: Right. Now, here's a question you might not have been asked yet. I'm going to ask you this now. What are you it's going to right. do, all you guys, when this is all over? Because, I mean, you've okay. become like little media stars, haven't you? <laughs> Seriously. I will go back, will go back <laughs> to living my life. I mean, you won't get recognised <laughs> in the street anymore. Or maybe you will. Uh, I hope not Well we shall see Dr Simon Clark thank you very much indeed Associate Professor uh, in Cellular Microbiology
0: Life is full of what ifs some awesome like what if AI could fold your laundry and some well less awesome like what if you have unexpected medical costs United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans they supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. Work.
2: Now, there's lots on the front page of the papers. Ten years on and never more in love, it says on the front page of the Daily Mail. And it is a beautiful thing to see. Love Me Tender, pictures of, uh, of William and Kate on the front page of The Sun. They've got a special souvenir pull-out, as everybody has, uh, because, you know, it's been a big year already for the royal family, even though uh, we are only coming into the beginning of May. Let's talk to Angela Levin and find out what's going on. Angela, a very good afternoon <laughs> to you. Hello. I was just talking about sort of, you know, life after the Prince Philip... Um, funeral because obviously you know looking at the pictures of William and Kate in all the papers today um, we're being told they've never been more in love married for 10 years it was very clear wasn't it at the at the funeral that, that Kate was playing quite an important role in trying to get Harry and William back sort of talking to each other
4: yes I think that's um that's true because she's a very positive person and she comes from a very stable happy family and she believes it's very important. Um, but uh, I don't think that they want to know that's the problem. I mean, there's got to be some sort of compromise, but they're standing very um, firmly mm. that they're never to blame and they're always right. And. If the royal family apologised, they might consider, you know, (laughs) being friends again. You know, it's all sort of grandiose. Yes.
2: Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when um, uh, he went back, I mean, we were all joking that, you know, of course, as soon as Harry gets back and as soon as he tells Meghan what happened, it will be all over CBS uh, in the morning show. Um, But it turns out that sure enough, as soon as he got back, I mean, clearly he didn't say anything while he was here, but as soon as he got back, you know, the story started to leak out that, you know, he had been surprised at how hostile the reception was for him inside of his own family, um, and that mm-hmm. he wasn't necessarily planning on coming back anytime soon, and that he might not even come back for the unveiling of uh, his mother's statue.
4: Yes. Well, the thing is, if you are rude, and he must have known he was rude and Megan were rude you can't expect that the people you've been rude about to say oh don't worry about that you carry on being rude <laughs> we still love you. right I mean, it's not going to happen and um, it it is the the leaks are astonishing because it's then guaranteed that you can't trust the person with anything and Mm. if you want to overcome a big argument it's very personal very deep inside you you've got to actually have the confidence that it is between the two of you and you may say things that you're unhappy with but you're building towards something positive but if you don't bother to do that? Or if is it a deliberate way of maintaining a sort of superior position? I think there's a big battle going Mm. on between um, Harry and Meghan and um, William and Kate, although William and Kate aren't fighting. But I think Harry has got it in his head that he's got to win. He's got to control and he's got to be superior. Mm. And um, he doesn't care about the cost. And if that's the way, then leaking and sulking and demanding things, behavior patterns, and uh, just won't work in actually making a bond. You can't feel that he really wants it. I think William, I think Kate wants it because she's a family person. I think William agrees Kate's right, which is very hard for him, and that he's um, stuck in the monarchy, which is a useless institution. Well, this um, is
2: the thing. I mean, you don't want to be involved with with, with, with sort of um, stress in a family, do you? I mean, we've all known families who have had that. We've all known people. I mean, I've got friends who haven't spoken to members of their family uh, for years. I know in my own family, we've had bust-ups from time to time with various different sections of them, but luckily nothing that's ever been long-lasting. But but it's kind of, if you're a partner to someone who's got stress in their in their extended family, it's not a good place to be, is it?
4: Well, I think... You're underestimating it by quite a lot, if you don't mind me saying Goodness so. Goodness me, am I? But what we say within our families usually stays within the family or just a few other people. Mm. This is, the whole world knows about yes, this. Yes, true. Every 50 million people who watched um, the in, conversation, I don't like mm. to call it an interview, uh, with Oprah Winfrey, yeah. would know what Harry and Meghan feels poor lambs you know and and i think it's incomparable <laughs> yeah but do you know what
2: i find I, I take your point angela but actually in my in my world anyway i wouldn't care about that you know if i was if i was kate or william i'd be more concerned about the relationship than how it looked to be honest you know what i mean so if we that's look true. at them as just ordinary people you know that's that's stressful right. i think well of course of course we are here's the thing <laughs> um they've been quite quiet though haven't they harry and megan oh for them Uh, they've announced that they're going to be doing this extra chapter to their book so they're going to update it in order that we can all read about the Oprah Winfrey interview and how terrible it all was for him when he had to come back to to the UK Um, but aside from that they haven't done much have they?
4: No well they've also publicised that they're going to be um, compares of a VAX engagement which is to try and get people to care about things and to be kind and um, to be careful about the country mm. and all the rubbish that we that's in the air. Mm. Um, but in that, I sort of blinked because they're going to demand that the UK and USA are going to send um, uh, the the vaccinations to all the countries that haven't oh, got it yet. I mean, I I just get really annoyed when Mm. they make demands like that. They're not experts. They've got no position anymore to make those sort of statements. I think um, President Biden, who's going to be there too, he can say what he likes Mm. because he's got a position like that. Well, he's been elected for a start. To make the most extraordinary demands, which are none of their business, actually.
2: No. Well, this is the thing. They're the self-appointed kind of king and queen of wokery who think yeah. that they can advise everybody else after having told us how terrible their lives are, Hold up in their, you know, 16-room mansion uh, with its nine bathrooms, or is it nine-room mansion with 16 oh, bathrooms? No, it's I can't 16 remember. toilets. That's right, 16 water. bathrooms, yeah, and five-car garage and all of that, and how awful it is that he's been cut off without anything but his £30 million to survive on, you know, in yeah. one of the richest parts of the world where they live. You know, I mean, I can't imagine anyone taking them very seriously for very long, really.
4: Well, I think this is the competition that I just mentioned, Mm. that they want to be an alternative royal family, but they're woke, so Mm. they will attract young people and they're the way forward. Whereas the people at home, and particularly Prince William, Kate and Prince Charles are all, you know, dead in the water, yesterday's people. Mm. Um, I think there's some drive there to get the power. Um, And I don't think... Um, Meghan and Harry will win. At least I hope... Well, they can't win. I don't think
2: they can because they can't really... I mean, once they've done that interview, really, with, with Oprah, there's nowhere else much for them to go. I mean, they can go all psychobabbly and get into the, the sort of Californian... Uh, area of self-help and do podcasting for people who need to be told which position to do yoga in every day but basically you know why would you listen to them for any reason other than the fact that you're somehow intrigued by somebody who was once in the royal family but looking at the picture well, of of William and Kate in the papers today taken by Chris Floyd who I don't know I must say but he's apparently a famous celebrity photographer it's a lovely picture isn't it well it's a
4: lovely picture and the two of them are obviously completely relaxed with each other and having fun and lean into each other or look at each other in a way that um, is is incredibly warm. Mm. They're not trying to beat each other and look the most attractive, but they are very comfortable and um, very happy together. And they've moulded together. It is extraordinary, really, that here you have somebody who had the same experience as Harry, losing their mother and all that, plus the burden he had to carry of being a future king, which is very difficult if you've had that terrible Mm. knock when you're young, and somebody who is middle class. And the way they've bonded and helped each other and supported each other is partly based on a long-term friendship. I mean, Kate dated years before uh, William proposed to her, but it's also... um, built on understanding and if the others one's down the other one helps them and and vice versa mm. and they do lots together but they also do things apart kate doesn't try and take over from him, no. but william has turned into a very successful diplomat if you remember israel and china that he's been to whereas kate has developed a real understanding and knowledge of early childhood and mental health Mm. within children. So she's an expert there. They don't cross each other. They can discuss it and help each other. um, Because in the middle, there is this mental health platform that they're both very keen on, but they, they allow each other space and and come together. And of course they are delighted with their absolutely adorable children. So they, William now has a, a happy family, a stable family. He can trust his wife. Um, He has fun with his children and and he's become a father and a husband, which is very doubtful when you come from two or three um, generations of dysfunctional family.
2: Mm, No, quite. And also the picture is just a lovely sort of relaxed, um, uh, you know, composed picture. But she's not doing that kind of, you know, staring into his eyes like a sick puppy that Megan does, you know, when she (laughs) just kind of looks at him. She's not
4: phony. She's not phony. She, she enjoys, she roars with laughter. You know, she missed, a, uh, they went to a farm the, uh, yesterday, uh, the day before, and she was asked to do some golf and she made this, you know, she got ready, she got the stick and the ball and she made a huge sweep and she missed it totally. And instead of looking quite cross and angry, she just burst into giggles and so William burst into giggles. So it's fun. They have fun. They yes. enjoy laughing. They enjoy being part of all our lives, I think. We always think of the royal family, those who aren't, who believe in the royal family, that they're a sort of tangent to our own relationship. So we want to see the children, we want to see... Well, they sort of of are, you know, I was
2: saying, I think, to you about Prince Philip and his funeral, you know, that during that period of time, that week, you know, it made me think of my own father and my own experiences. And like, in the same way that this 10-year anniversary has made me think back 10 years to, what was I doing 10 years ago? You know, and it's kind of like, it's a yardstick that everybody uses.
4: Yes. Well, I think there's been huge changes. I mean, um, I think William and and Catherine, I should call her, really, have grown and developed and are completely comfortable with each other. Whereas Harry, who used to be charismatic and witty and charming and a bit of a mischievous fellow, um, is now just full of anger and pomposity. Mm. And it's, I think I've said this to you before, that you need to have, a partner who brings out the best in you, not the worst in you.
2: Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And unfortunately for Harry, um, that is not really what's going on at the moment, is it?
4: It doesn't look like it. I think he's scared of Meghan and mm. he's actually got a huge aim to please her, which is good in a husband, of course. But um, I think he he's a shadow of himself and mm. he's hollow inside and he's just... And frightened. also, I mean,
2: could he not have hung about one day extra? for the Queen's birthday. I mean, it was pretty churlish, I thought, to leave literally one day before. I mean, if it had been a week, you could go, Okay, he doesn't want to wait a week. But he left the day before her
4: birthday. I think he felt very uncomfortable coming back, not only because he wasn't greeted with open arms, although people, some of the senior royals were quite friendly, but it was about the funeral. It wasn't about him. Mm. And perhaps he thought it should have been more about him and was disappointed. But um, also, I think that it brought back memories that were probably quite positive about when he was with his grandfather. And he doesn't want to activate them because that makes him go a bit against Megan's rules. No. Um, So I think he was very, very awkward. And when he came in to the chapel, he was tapping his leg, which is a sign that he's very stressed Mm. and, and feels... He didn't feel,
2: he didn't look comfortable, in my view. But um, Angela, you, as ever, delightful. Yeah. We managed to get you back, so thank you very much for fixing <laughs> that. Um, and we shall talk to you again, I'm sure, very soon. Angela Levin, Royal Biographer, there. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk now to Will Geddes, security and terror expert, because an interesting case going on uh, in the Supreme Court right now uh, in which it will be decided whether or not a case can go ahead uh, by someone who wants to launch a class action suit against Google for collecting data. Basically, it goes back a few years, this and it's a bit complicated. So do bear with us uh, collecting data on him and other people uh, when they were searching for things on Google through their Safari uh, search engine. Will, a very good morning to you. Welcome. And a good morning to you, Commander. Thank you very much indeed. Now, it is um, complicated, this story, but it's not so complicated that you and I can't figure it out, right? So it's basically about what right does Google and presumably other, um, you know, online services have to basically harvest your data, right?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a little bit more than that, Mike. It's something which, you know, we've relinquished our privacy to a certain degree. And I think we've accepted that, the, the fact that we have smartphones, that we're searching online for mm. various bits and bobs. But it's what the big companies are doing with that data. Right. And there are better and better controls these days by the Information Commission, for example, uh, who will ensure that various websites will request your permission before you accept that they will take cookies for you visiting that website. I can go on to explaining what that actually means if you want to Yeah,
2: please do. Because I think a lot of people see that Mm. whenever they look something up because we've now got that new, I think it was an EU law that was brought in. Um, Do you accept the cookies? Everybody just goes, yeah, fine. You don't really know what it means, do you? No, a lot of people don't, and and cookies are probably the best way to describe it, a little bit like
1: breadcrumbs. Mm. So whenever you visit a particular website, what will happen is that website will store certain pieces of information about where you looked on that particular website, mm. whether you saved stuff within your basket when you were shopping, so that when you go back to that website... It's a it's an easier journey, if you like, in terms of looking for what you want now that that can be super helpful and it can be very inert. It doesn't have to be particularly insidious. But the case with Google is quite a different story. And what they did was they created what they call a safari workaround. Now, this was a means of them being able to collect your data without you having given them express permission. And using that data, which they they would pass forward to what they call their double-click ad network, which means you're not just visiting that website. So if you want to imagine, Mike, you're sitting in a bar with me. We're talking about… I can't imagine what that's like. (laughs) Exactly. It's (laughs) been so long, hasn't it, Mike? Um, We're we're talking about our likes of movies, music, you know, what we're going to do on our holiday, where we're going to go, that sort of thing. And it's like someone sitting next to us at the bar, listening to all that information without our permission, not part of our group, not someone that we know. And then them
2: using that information potentially uh, to target us in one way or another. Mm. What's interesting about that, actually, Will, is is that if you are, say you are sitting in a restaurant and it's a very, um, uh, you know, the tables are very close together, you overhear something between two people. There's nothing to stop you from using that information, is there? Whereas if it's data, that's a different matter.
1: Yeah, it is a totally different matter because, again, if you are in a room, let's say you and I want to have a very sensitive conversation, we'll make sure we move to a quiet part of the Mm. room so nobody can eavesdrop. The problem is when we're online, we want to ensure that those people that are listening into that conversation we've given them permission to do so. Or we don't really care because we're in a crowded bar and we're not talking about Mm. anything that's particularly personally compromising.
2: Yes. I mean, of course, there's all sorts of other issues surrounding communications laws and and what can be interpreted and what can be listened in on and all of that. But, you know, we seem to be now in a place where... Almost everything that we do is monitored. You know, we've been having these conversations around the NHS app and whether you're going to get a health app now, which will allow you to travel abroad on, a, on an aeroplane. But the person that then checks your app to see whether you've been vaccinated could potentially also check to see whether you've had a heart attack.
1: Yeah, well, again, it depends on how much data is presented, where it's presented. Is it enabling the person who's inspecting that that vaccination sort of certification whether they can access other parts of your phone i mean you're absolutely right mike i mean i wrote a piece very recently for one of our sort of security industry sort of publications mm. about stalking right and one yeah. of the things that i said was you know the fact that you know we used to be concerned about other people watching us uh, if people aren't watching us on social media we can feel a bit dismayed <laughs> if they're not liking or commenting mm. on what we actually put up there however when we're going online it's about controlling what we want the world to see and what we want our friends to see and who we're giving permission to and who we aren't. And the the question here with this whole Google class action is the fact that they did create some JavaScript code which enabled them to bypass the security preferences of Safari between June 2011 and and February 2012 to enable them to be able to collect data without you knowing. And Mm. so that information is going out elsewhere. So it kind of plays into that whole issue of often people say to me, but Will, I was only talking to my friend about a holiday in Cyprus, Mm. yet I went online, All of a surprise, there were ads for holidays in Cyprus.
2: Yes, and that does happen a lot to me, certainly with Facebook. I mean, I've got all my microphones switched off. Um, You know, I could be sitting uh, in the living room talking to somebody about something. And then suddenly um, I look on Facebook and there's an ad for, for something that I've been talking about. And I'm still puzzled, and I shouldn't be, I suppose, as to how that works. Well let's put it this way I don't have any internet you know internet
1: of things in my house I don't have any particular virtual speakers that I can command to turn my music over not in my home right. and and as you know Mike I wrote a book particularly for parents about children who are going online and what information they're giving out. But, you know, the simple reason is, is there's a lot of very, very smart algorithms out there which will collect lots of data about our likes, our wants, our dislikes Mm. and everything else. I mean, and the concern, particularly with this browser generated information collected by Google, is it could include racial or ethnic origin, physical, mental health, political affiliations or opinions, sexual interests and social class. Now, that kind of data could all add together into a jigsaw puzzle to say this person has these particular likes, mm. which is where the targeted ads can come in. So again, joining the, the listening of devices to the information that we see online is a very short leap.
2: Yes. And the other slight complication with this story is that the case which is about to be heard is not so much about the data itself, but about whether, in fact, the case can be brought as a class action, which we're not used to in this country, are we? It's something that the Americans do an awful lot of, where they basically get a group of people together and say, right, we're going after somebody, we're going to go after Google.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are potentially five and a half million people in the UK. And I speak really with the exception of Scotland because it has its own particular laws. But this goes back to and a lot of people will be saying, why is it coming now Mm. when this incident took place in 2011, 2012? Yeah. The fact of the matter is that actually that was uh, the case right now goes back to a case brought to the High Court in 2015 by three individuals, particularly on the safari workaround. And even preceding that, there was a court case brought over in the States uh, from uh, analytics that were carried out by a Stanford University professor or, or I think, researcher, uh, which led to a case, obviously, a number of legal cases by the Federal Trade Commission in 38 states. And Google did pay up. Mm. I think it was something like 30 odd million dollars in the class action brought there. So. Again, that sets a, a precedent, albeit in another jurisdiction.
2: So does this mean we could all be in for a bit of a windfall, then, if this goes ahead and and, uh, and this guy from which magazine wins?
1: Well, there are a few little bits and bobs <laughs> on there, which inevitably are always going to apply, Michael. Um, you know, there are, there are a couple of things. First of which is whether you were, had an iPhone legitimately and legally between those dates of yeah. 2011, June and, uh, and 2012. I think I did. Uh, Okay. Number one, if you use Safari on your phone, probably if you did. yeah. Okay, and they're not including, by the way, iPads and OSX, i.e., the laptops, right? Uh, for simple reasons of complexities, I think. But there's mm. a good chance there were breaches there. We might see actions obviously being brought forward on those. Uh, there are also whether you denied yourself in your settings of Google Ad settings yes. and whether. You- That off.
2: Yeah, see I wouldn't remember that. How would they even find out if that was the case?
1: Well, you can actually have a look at your phone right now, and if they're not switched on, there's a good chance they weren't switched on then. Mm. And equally the security settings, if they were default on Safari, i.e. you haven't done anything with the security settings on your Safari, then you're probably uh, you're probably open and, uh, and going to be uh, one of the, the, the claimants that could fall within this class action. Model.
2: Although they does, it does say in this piece that even users who had chosen a do not track privacy setting were still tracked.
1: Yeah, there's every good chance because, again, this code which Google launched uh, bypassed most of those security settings, mm. which, uh, which enabled them to collect that data, the, that cookie data. And remember, Google are making billions off their advertising. So... To a certain extent, if they're circumventing security measures to to advantage them making more money, well, you know, there could be a fair claim there.
2: Yeah, I think so. Fascinating stuff. Will, thank you very much indeed. Will Geddes, uh, security and terror expert there, giving us the lowdown on what is a very, um, I would say, potentially landmark situation where uh, if you were getting uh, your information from Safari from a website and your information that was then harvested to Google uh, without your knowledge, without your say so, without your permission, uh, you may well be in for some money. So, I mean, you know. Don't tell me that we don't not only inform you here at Talk Radio, but we also show you ways of actually making a bit of moolah on the side. Talk Radio
1: across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk
0: Radio.